This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Nina is off this week. We're talking about the film Safe from 1995, and the theme is allergies. Helen, kick us off. Okay, so I wanted to talk about um, an allergy we have today to, to nuance and to the idea that more than one thing can be true at the same time. Um, there is the uh, common misconception that Hegel was behind this idea of uh, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, when nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, Hegel was about syllogism rather than synergy, so two separate things that are able to be true at the same time. And I really like this film precisely, precisely because it was so ambivalent. Um, I think I said to you guys last time that there's another uh, short documentary, a short film um, about a similar uh, set of ideas or a similar set of symptoms that people are dealing with. And it's called Snowflake, Arizona. I believe it was on the Guardian US site a few years ago. And looking at comparing the two films, I really think that SAFE does a much uh, better job, not just in terms of... Um, you know, ethically, really, but philosophically as well. Um, in the Snowflake Arizona film, I think, you know, often we can think that uh, a documentary film is precisely factual and not taking a perspective when, of course, it is. And I think the perspective is very much one of um, sneering somewhat at the victims of this um, uh, illness, quote unquote, whatever this illness is that they have uh, in Snowflake. I think they call it. Uh, multiple chemical sensitivity. Um, for example, there is a quite blatant Freudian slip that's left in to the film, which of course speaks the truth um, of one of these sufferers, what's going on for him. But I think it was deliberately, you know, presented in such a way that it made him look a bit silly. So the interviewer says, when my camera, when my camera is too close, what does it make you feel? Because he's complained that the, that the camera has been too close to him. Um, I'm starting to get fuzzy headed, he says. I can't think so well. It feels to me like there's a little three year old that's going, hey, 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 only it's in my head. You know, so I think that film is really, um, depicting the psychosomatic aspect of, uh, what these sufferers are suffering. When I think um, the ambivalence of safe is is much more interesting because two things can be true at the same time. Hegel says um, that, uh, not Hegel, sorry, Lacan, it talks about how you can be a hypochondriac and still have cancer, for instance. So you can also have an imaginary illness at the same time as being extremely ill. And this is to do with the nature of um, the split subjectivity that humans have. Um and I think, you know, not only does Todd Haynes treat the main character's suffering with a sort of ambivalence, we, we aren't told whether she really has anything wrong with her. Um, although she does have sort of very, um, blatant symptoms, sort of like facial rashes and things like that. And at the same time, we can also see these people peddling cures, um, maybe in a negative light that they are, uh, just, um, exploiting people's suffering and offering people solutions, knowing that it's complete rubbish. Um, but I think also that there's an ambivalence there because I think these, uh, people offering the solutions potentially also believe themselves genuinely that they're offering a solution. 
Um, and it is a, it's a film that's quite close to my heart, I suppose. Um, I was in a situation, uh, and my sister was as well, where we had an illness for seven years before we got diagnosed with what we know it is now. And I think I personally have an allergy to a lot of um, things that I would class as magical thinking. Um, I personally can get very irate with these people peddling cures that that, that don't work. Um, people who misinterpret how psychoanalysis works as if it's some magical solution that you can sort of, you know, um, wave a magic wand or switch your amygdala and sort of make changes or that your mind is in complete control of your body when actually I think the opposite is true. And psychoanalysis often helps people who are ill discover that they are ill in order that they can do something about it rather than um, telling them that it's a completely imaginary thing and that uh, lifting the imaginary or the imaginary uh, illness will lift the symptoms. I think it's much more complicated than that. But you know, unfortunately, um, one's experience is often of uh, a medical system that does have many blind spots. And I think about um, the Hegelian insight, um, the psychoanalytic insight, the quantum insight, and um, the insight of Darwin in terms of contradiction uh, in evolution. And I wonder whether at some stage in medicine, there will be a sort of quantum insight or an understanding of um, a reality, a handling of a reality in a much more complex way than it is currently handled. I think um, people obviously who are unwell go through a lot of suffering in terms of treatment as well, but we don't really have any other solutions other than modern medicine, which is obviously an amazing innovation as well. Um, and personally, it's very, very much helped me and many other people that I know, of course. Um, but yes, th this sort of phase, this, this terrible phase of knowing something is wrong, not having any answers. Um, it's very impossible to resist, um, facile solutions and solutions that can also perpetuate illnesses because they're not solutions at all. And I think there is something very similar to just one's general experience as a human thrown into the chaosmos, um, to this woman who is sort of blindly trying to manage something she doesn't even know, um, you know, she, she doesn't even know what it is. And I think it, it is very similar to, to life as such. Um, and we can often, because of our allergy to nuance and difficulty, we can turn to very facile, one-sided, totalitarian, but as we know, totalitarian is not total, totalitarian explanations. And I think that the uh, peddlers of these magical solutions exist in many different spheres, um, in the political, most especially potentially. Um, but yes, it's something, I think this is a really interesting film that deals with the problem of being human in quite an interesting way. All right. Now it's my turn. Safe's tagline asks, are you allergic to the 20th century? If the first half of Safe is about the questions raised by the 20th century, the second half is about the problems with the 21st century's solutions. The film is ostensibly set in the late 1980s, but much of the first half of the film feels like it could have happened at any point in the post-war era. You have an affluent family where the husband makes the crucial decisions while his wife spends his money, socializes, and hires people to clean the house and take care of the kids. There's economic security, but the whole scenario is extremely dull. For many 20th century Western Marxists, capitalism had more or less succeeded as a pure economic system. 
The post-war system kept wages growing and it kept unemployment manageable. The horror of it was no longer material but cultural. It was because capitalist social roles failed to confer meaning that the system was fated to fail. The luxuries the system provided were no substitute for real vitality, for a purposeful life. Over and over in the mid to late 20th century, this critique of capitalism was the one we heard loudest. Whenever the Cold War ebbed and people were able to take a breath, the emptiness of their lives became the central issue. But the people of the 20th century didn't all take a breath at the same time. Different people would, at different points in their lives, alight upon the emptiness of life under capitalism. When they did so, they did not find a host of compatriots ready to deliver revolution. Instead, they found themselves even more isolated from the people around them. This is the fate that befalls Safe's protagonist. As she becomes more and more allergic to the 20th century, she becomes more and more disconnected from the people around her. They aren't able to understand her predicament. They aren't even sure her problems are real. The doctors dismiss her. There's nothing medically wrong. It's all in her head, they say. Her husband wants to help, but he doesn't get it. The same goes for her friends. At this point, the film shifts gears. The main character leaves the 20th century behind to join a New Age cult. The cult is a harbinger of things to come. The standard of living in the New Age cult is much lower than it was in the posh town the protagonist left behind. But in exchange for surrendering these luxuries, our main character receives a precious gift, validation. These people embrace her. They are happy she's here, and they make a point to make her feel welcome. The protagonist knows it's a cult. She spends her first night weeping, but ultimately she embraces the lie to get a level of recognition. This is the trade we are all asked to make in the 21st century. We are asked to surrender the material security we enjoyed in the 20th century in exchange for various forms of cultural catharsis. Ultimately, all of these forms of catharsis fall back on the idea that we are individually special. By learning to love ourselves or discover ourselves, we are meant to transcend our contexts. Our families are increasingly broken, our jobs are increasingly precarious, and our political system is increasingly dysfunctional. But by embracing a sense of self, we are supposed to push past all of this and find ways to grow. The 21st century is fixated on allowing everyone to feel seen and accepted. We construct individual identities, we project them, and the people around us are meant to affirm them. These identities are supposed to make us psychologically self-sufficient. Freed from dependence on any set of institutions, on any social context, we are supposed to make our peace with declining societies, decaying institutions, diminished life chances. With enough self-love, self-care, we think we can rise above it all. We relish the possibility of apocalypse and dystopia because these conditions would enable us to prove that we truly need nothing, that we are the ultimate source of our own virtue. We wish the earth truly were poison, if only to prove once and for all that we don't need it. This is the 21st century. You can be anything you want, provided you're willing to accept a symbolic, non-substantive version of the thing. On the one hand, the old categories supposedly no longer bind us. But on the other hand, we are encouraged to identify heavily with many of these same old categories. They mean both everything and nothing. We're expected to identify heavily with races and genders that at the same time must not tie us to any particular set of social roles. In so doing, we come to identify with the aspects of ourselves which have the least to do with who we truly are. Rather than take the role of mother or father and the expectations that come with those roles, we adopt our sats, masculine, and feminine aesthetics. We want to identify with whiteness and blackness without being expected to act white or act black. We want to fill our individuality with the content of group signifiers while retaining absolute autonomy from the stereotypes and prejudices traditionally attached to those signifiers. 
and so Safe's protagonist leans into her allergies, making them the essence of who she is, surrounding herself with people who will validate her sense of self. By the end of the film, she is at once fixated on the concept of self-love while spouting the jargon given to her by the cult. She has no individuality left to celebrate, and yet her worldview demands she pretend otherwise. Her identity is little more than comforting gibberish. She says, I really hated myself before I came here, so I'm trying to see myself, hopefully, more as I am, more more positive, like seeing the pluses. I think it's slowly opening up now. People's minds like educating and and AIDS and and other types of diseases because because it is a disease, because it's out there, and we just have to be more aware of it. We have to make people aware of it and um even ourselves like uh, going, reading labels, and going into buildings. That right there is the essence of the 21st century answer to the 20th century problem. <laughs> very good. I know this, this validation of her own identity is one of the things that can be very, very difficult, yeah, in terms of, in terms of illness, because um, as I say, like the, the multiple layers of how one relates to one's illness and what one libidinally gets out of it and things like that, and often... Um, things like good psychoanalysis can help you get to a point where you don't need your illness anymore or that you can find a way to get beyond it. And of course, I don't know that the, um, there's a, uh, Levy, Claude Levy Strauss, uh, fable I really like, which goes, um, it's about a man who's trying to lift up a rock, but it's so heavy he can't lift it. And, um, by dint of its heavy, heaviness, he keeps trying, trying, trying. Um, but all he does after a while, because he can't lift these rocks, is to search for the rock he cannot lift. You know, so it's the, it's the, um, impossibility of being well that sustains the fantasy that beyond the other side of it, you know, is a utopian wellness. But I really like what you were talking about, um, about this sort of like, essence and this weird way, um, that the 21st century deals with essence. So, I've noticed in my sphere that, you know, one is demanded or asked to lean into one's own identity as if that um, is, I think it's to do with the fact that we're, we're returning to this sort of idea that you are b- born an individual and you have to get back to this essence. Like your your life's journey is to get to this perfect you that already exists, to sort of align yourself to something that's already already exists, that you sort of knocked off course by things that happen in your life and you sort of return to it. And also that there, you know, that everybody has the possibility of genius if they just unearth it, you know, and that um each individual has this sort of special something that can be got at if one buys the product that they have created. Of course, the idea of narrative for a business, business people have a narrative about, oh, I was so ill and this is why I set up this in you know, this, this company of vegan products because it helped me get well again, you know, whatever. Um, but it, it is totally, A, I mean, it doesn't work on so many different levels, obviously. A, because nature is nurture, you know, we are who our early years you know, what, what happens to us in our early years. There is no essence. But at the same time, you know, you're talking about um, how we're asked to perform these sort of identities, like gender identities, but at the same time, not subscribe to this essence. Like, I just, it is, it's just so funny how the two sides of the issue are handled in this way that is sort of like complete gobbledygook. But ideologically, you know, ideology is a sort of warm, fuzzy, 
sense of you know clarity that we suddenly get where it all makes sense but if you peel it back a little bit it doesn't make sense at all I think about this a lot with you know the women's sports issue um obviously we've talked a lot about the sort of gender essentialism versus um you know gender fluidity question and how they are very much you know kind of a dialectically related positions um but it is it's it's utterly bizarre and as you say, you know, you, you quoted her speech, which is utterly meaningless, you know, utterly meaningless. Yeah, I, I really liked what you said about you know, things can be true at the same time. And I think this is a deep insight. It really is the case that the situation that she's in at the beginning of the film is, is an awful situation in all sorts of ways. And it really is the case that the only alternative to it that we seem to be able to come up with is also awful yeah. in all sorts of ways. And in many ways, it's it's the ways in which the initial situation constitutes us, mm -hmm. which leads us to embrace solutions which are equally broken, mm -hmm. right? So it's the fact that she began, you, know, you begin in the 20th century constrained by these particular roles, which causes you to, even as you're trying to emancipate yourself from those categories, to nonetheless lean into them and cling to them, right? So the individual is supposed to be a rebellion against these socially given roles and categories, Right. So ostensibly, it's supposed to get you out of this 20th century where you're defined by things like race and gender and class and so on. But because we're coming from the 20th century, we nonetheless are inclined to define individuality in terms of those categories. So the individual becomes their culture and their culture becomes the same basket of categories. But the categories are deracinated. They've been stripped of their meaning. And so if you try to make them meaningful, to try to make them meaningful would be to turn them back into the 20th century version of them. To make you know, whiteness or maleness meaningful is to give it a fixed content, which turns it into the thing that it used to be that ostensibly you want it to no longer be. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I know it's, um, I, I, was, I was trying to think this through yesterday, this sort of issue, this, this critique I have of the, both the sort of gender essentialist position and also the, um, I don't know what you call the op opposing position, maybe, you know, the sort of question of gender fluidity and how they are both right and both wrong at the same time. And so the truth is, it's not in either of those positions, but in a sort of a different relationship to both of those positions in relation to reality. And I think that one of the challenges is of our, of our era is, is working through or finding some kind of solution that contains the complexity of of all these opposing truths. And obviously, yeah, our historical um, fixed categories um, operated in some ways, but had a sort of repressed downside, let's say. And we now are in this sort of reactive, um, anarchic, uh, sort of, um, I wouldn't say it's not a solution, like attempt to solution, but really it is exactly the same as same dynamic as was going on before. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't particularly know, but I was trying to. It's, it's really complicated when you try to sort of analyze these things because I do think that, for instance, the question of gender is an interesting one. As in, of course, there is this biological reality, but then whether we um, tie ourselves to the existential essence of this biological reality is, you know, a separate question potentially. But then, of course, when we are um, having this question of gender fluidity and 
and um, sort of blurring the boundaries. All we do is we become obsessed with those very boundaries in the first place and become, you know, see our essence perhaps in the oppositional gender. But it's the same question of a search for an absolute deliberate essence. But if one is able to be like, well, yes, there's a material biological reality, there's also a subjectival reality, and they are connected, but not always the same thing, uh, one can perhaps actually have a more... um uh, you know, a stakes lowered association with these categories. Because I think the thing is, you know, when we're talking about this sort of neurotic form of desire, where we're attempting always to, to close the gap of lack, attempting to get to utopian solutions, whatever we do, whether it's an aesthetically, um, you know, um, unrepressed because I say aesthetically unrepressed because often the most unrepressed are the most repressed, I have to say. But, you know, an aesthetically sort of um, beyond categorization or whatever, we, we're still within, we, nothing has changed. We're still within this sort of toxic form of desire. Um, and we haven't actually taken on the lessons of the 20, 20th century into the 21st. We're just replaying. We've, we've chosen the, um, you know, we were talking a little bit about like uh, the question of how potentially things like uh, psychoanalysis has been mistakenly um, misaligned with with wokeness, where we, we sort of pick and choose only the aesthetic elements of, a, let's say, revolutionary, although revolutionary is a tricky word, uh, radical as well as tricky word, um, set of ideas that just maintain and extend the same toxic form of desire, which was already our problem in the 20th century. Yeah, yeah. And I think that part of the issue is on a kind of meta level. When we think about whether a concept is scalar or dichotomous, right? Is is gender scalar or dichotomous? Is if it's dichotomous, then there are men and there are women. If it's scalar, then there's a kind of fluid scale, right? And of course, if we think about concepts as organized into those that are dichotomous and those that are scalar, that is itself a dichotomous way to think about how concepts themselves are organized. And I think that the difficult thing is to realize that, of course, if you're going to have a scale, for the scale to be workable, it still has to be the case that when you describe a position on the scale, that position is in some ways meaningfully distinct from other positions on the scale, right? So to have a scalar concept, you need a certain ability to draw lines between one spot on the scale and another spot, right? And yet, at the same time, if you focus too heavily on those lines and draw them too seriously, then the scale fades away and it just becomes a dichotomous system where it's this or that. So to try to have both of those things at once requires a willingness to embrace a level of vagueness, because to try to eliminate the vagueness and have with certainty and clarity is to embrace a dichotomous way of thinking, right? So the only way you can have a scalar concept in the first instance is to accept a level of vagueness about where precisely you draw the lines and how heavily you draw the lines between the different points on the scale. And I think that that's the trouble when we go and take apart a set of categories because we don't like that sharp dichotomous organization. We then get bothered by the vagueness and uncertainty that results from that. And inevitably, we try to rectify that vagueness and uncertainty by imposing a new set of dichotomous lines, which are just as aggravating as the previous set. Yes. 
And it, it, as you say, like this, I think this is a, you know, part of the thing that's really interesting with this film is um, the vagueness of not knowing what's wrong with her or knowing if she's even got an illness is such a horrendous challenge. And of course, the, um, the facile and tempting and obviously sometimes necessary solution is to latch on to clear, overly simple explicatory mechanisms. Um, obviously, then there comes a stage when those explicatory mechanisms become too toxic. <laughs> and the vagueness is more um, is 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 more um, not only appealing, but necessary. And obviously, I think, you know, we, we live in very, very unequal, very, very unstable economically speaking, politically speaking times. And this, of course, leads to a, um, a collective sense of um, instability that leads us to think in black and white terms, think much more in terms of dichotomies, in terms of uh, overly facile explicatory mechanisms. Um, so this is a lot to do with uh, the overarching uh, political economic landscape we live in. Yeah, we're trying to have clarity in our thought because we don't have it in our actual lives. Our actual lives have become extremely messy. And so we try to score an imaginary victory over that by categorizing everything in a very clear way, intellectually and emotionally. Absolutely. Uh, which we can, you know, and then if we have it clear, once it really feels clear to us, then we can just educate other people about it because all they need is to be given the right categories and then the problem will be solved. Uh, you know, that's, I think, that the missionary zeal of this. When you really believe in those categories, then you can just share them. But do you do you actually believe them, or do you need the other to believe for you? <laughs> because you, right. you know, well, yes. The reason you need the other to believe them is because otherwise you can't. And that's ultimately what happens with the protagonist in this movie. You know, she gets to a point where she has gotten out of out of the box, but everybody around her is deeply uncomfortable with that. Yeah. And that makes her deeply uncomfortable with it. She needs to go to a place where other people will affirm her, even if that means she has to buy into a whole new set of garbage categories to get that affirmation. Absolutely. And fundamentally, it's because the protagonist in the movie is it, it, it very, I mean, I wanted to say weak person, but I, I shouldn't say weak because I think we all, we all need other people and we all need to be socially embedded. And it's just, it's very difficult to get out of a set of categories and still have people around you who will be supportive. And so when you've gotten out of that set of categories, the impulse is eventually to go and find another set because that's the only way to find another community. And I, this is something that has bothered me for years about community. <laughs> I... I, I have never been a joiner. I've never been someone who's really been able to be part of things, right? And yet I see very clearly that communities are essential and necessary and that nobody can exist and function outside of them. And so my whole life has been a kind of sitting at the edge of things, not really being out, but also not really being in, mm -hmm. right? Because if I were to go in, then I would have to sign up to all the bullshit that I can't, I can't stick with. But if I were to go out, then I wouldn't have any kind of, of social system in which mm -hmm. to, to psychologically thrive and I would fall apart and gradually deteriorate. 
So I have to I have to stay in this liminal space between being in and out. But yeah, no, this is a this is a real a real issue, and I think that um, you touched on it in the opening in your opening kind of um, intervention. But I think you going back to the the woman's um, personality. I think it's like a necessary device for the film that she be quite blank and empty, and I think that allows for a certain you know nuance and vagueness and ambivalence in terms of this whole issue but yeah i mean the issue of recognition is so important like we require recognition in fact our whole subjectivity is generated by the very um instances of being recognized as a young child of being recognized by our parents we need that recognition to to know who we are know where we stand and to not only individually, but like societally for a whole um, society to function. And it is something that's really missing in a society that is a pure, that where, where the market system has invaded everything and we are nothing but, uh, you know, a, a disposable commodity. And of course, identity politics and ident- the obsession with identity is a way to sort of fend that off or is a perfect solution for that to continue. Um but of course, there's a massive downside to it. There's always a downside, you know. Um, and yeah, the downside, I think, you know, in the film as well, it, the, the downside is expressed in her tears. You know, she she's absolutely terribly upset when she's come into this community. You know, so the return of the repressed, she knows unconsciously that this is all bollocks, you know. <laughs> and I think that there is... Um, you know, in any in any situation, there's always a return of the repressed. And I think the return of the repressed in terms of identity politics is the obsession with um, not challenging it, you know, the obsession with not debating. So, you know, you can't debate my identity, you can't debate my this, that and the other. It's, you know, beyond question. It's precisely a symptom of the fact that nobody is quite so sure. Yeah, yeah. And I think you know, one of the things I notice is that there are a lot of uh, political commentators who fall into either on the one hand trying to get in with the establishment and the elite, right? And therefore having to subscribe to its schema, its conceptual schema. And then on the other side, there are the people who decidedly do not do that. And they they decidedly say they're going to be anti-elite and populist and, and outside of all of it. And these people get very isolated doing that unless they find another community of people to support them. And once they find another community of people to support them, then that community has its own categories and its own frameworks. And those frameworks are you know, decidedly outside of the realm which the elite considers acceptable, but they're also limiting frameworks in their own right with many of the same problems which the elite framework has. And the difficulty is, I think it's very rare for someone to have a material context which allows them to neither to join neither part of that, to, to neither sub, submerge themselves in the elite discourse, uh, nor to submerge themselves in some substitute popular replacement elite discourse. Uh, and liminality it's it's about we have this lack of ability as people to to tolerate liminality because so often we can't get what we need socially while having a liminal attitude to concepts the people mm-hmm. around us find it too unnerving yeah and upsetting and they'll 
they'll push us away until through our own psychological breakdown, we jump in and embrace some other group. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, of course, each, each of those you're talking about the, 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 like, for example, the, you know, the, the person within the elite, whatever, and some, let's say, anarchistic person who thinks it's all bollocks, but is actually doing exactly the same thing and is still engaged in exactly the same, um, subjective framework or libidinal framework, which is the framework of capitalism itself. Um, and of course, often when one is able to step outside of it, it is because of one's material conditions or whatever. Um, or, you know, one has, you know, such a sense of recognition for some, some other, you know, um, reason or other. Um, but of course, I do think though, you know, that I think there is a solution, but I, and I think it's this is where like the dialectic dialectic of the political and the philosophical. Like I don't think we can get to the pol political solution without understanding how this sort of set of philosophical insights work. And I don't think we can get to a collective sort of understanding of these philosophical insights without you know a political or economic transformation. So it's the, I think we're in this like really tricky stage right now, and it can seem really woo woo to the people who are politically minded, or also really sort of like systematic and political to those who are sort of more. Uh, well, let's say, you know, um, interested in subjectivity, for instance. Um, but yeah, I think there is a, there's a connection here. And I think what often leads people to, for example, psychoanalysis is when, um, the, the solution. So, you know, alcoholism isn't a problem. It's a solution to a problem or anorexia is not a problem. It's a solution to a problem. It's a, it's a set of, um, attempts to find a way to rationalize an intolerable predicament and to sort of get through life. But there's a, a time when these attempts become more toxic um, than no solution at all. So <laughs> that's when, you know, you, you really, you know, um, enter into something new. And I, I think that um, this is really the issue of the day. And um, yes, where do we go with these insights? Are these insights even possible? And is it possible to get beyond this sort of toxic striving for recognition when all that there is in terms of recognition these days is a marketized recognition through capital. Yeah. You know, I, I'm thinking about a lot of old political theory, Machiavelli, Rousseau, Plato, you know, where there are these Lycurgus figures, these lawgiver figures who are supposed to come in at the moment in which the society is completely broken down and seems entirely unable to find the resources within itself to rectify its own position. And they're supposed to wipe the slate clean and give a new law and create a new context. And I think it kind of speaks to this situation where, especially in the case of Plato, you have someone who, in his cycle of regimes in the Republic, very blatantly shows how the conditions in the city cause it to get worse. And as it worsens, that gives rise to more worsening and new forms of worsening. And so there, there's a lot of material awareness in Plato. People think of him as an idealist, but there's a lot of material awareness that as things unravel, those things will cause further unraveling, right? Then you get to the point where you have to ask, well, how would we make it better, right? Once we have a political context which makes it so difficult for people to have the right kinds of qualities to form a better kind of society, how then do we get to a better kind of society? And theorists get into this trap where they've de described a process of decay and the process of decay is very convincing and very airtight right but the consequence of it is that it doesn't seem like there's any account of how things would improve that's consistent with that process of decay 
except through some kind of transcendental Caesar figure who gets just inserted in. And so this is what I kind of think about. We get into this impasse all the time where we need better kinds of people to have the better kind of society, and we need a better kind of society to have better kinds of people. And in this attempt to have better, we end up, there doesn't seem to be any way there except to project these qualities onto some person and give that person some authority to rearrange things. And that seems to be the the trap that political theorists fall into trying to get out of this problem over and over again. But of course, you can never, like, virtue is never the solution, like, because everybody is, everybody is equally fucked as a human person and everybody is equally lacking. And, um, this attempt to, this virtue, you know, obsession with virtue always leads to enemy making and people on one side, people on the other. But the only thing that is, um, and also, you know, it's only, it's only in like, the le- I mean, this is totally like logically justifiable, but I can't be asked to go into like the full logic of it right now because I think I've done it so many different times. And I feel like I would like always say the same thing, but like it's in the let and go that, you know, you are given the kingdom of heaven, i.e. it's only in the striving for the kingdom that the enemies are generated that then consequentially to alienation, exploitation, blah, 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 blah. Um, so there is a, a, the path certainly... Uh, I think would have to look like something that is accepting of um, the shitness of the world rather than the striving to overcome it. So this, the striving to overcome it has to go through the opposite of that. And of course, as human beings, and this comes back to, I guess, to the, you know, this sort of the syllogism rather than synergistic thinking, you know, syllogism is sort of tolerating the fact that those two things can be true at the same time. And capitalistic thinking, of course, is very much the opposite. It's like, constantly striving for the better but that obviously causes much worse um but it's this tolerance that in order to get to a better we have to tolerate the worst um yes yeah now i'm thinking about nietzsche and nietzsche's attempt to undo it all by letting it all collapse in a in in the in the big conflict yeah i mean because i guess that's not a solution (laughs) you know because we can't we can't like um you know, we need, we need systems, we need this and the other, but I guess it's sort of a solution of no solution. Like, I guess, you know, in, in psychoanalysis, the solution is this, well, the other side of, of, um, the cure is ordinary unhappiness, you know, so it's, it's, it's foregoing the transcendental for the normal. And I guess that, you know, the normal is pretty shit, but it's sort of getting out of this, you know, I always think, the Elon Musks and the sort of Mars and all this kind of stuff, these striving for other planets. This is all the same shit. And at some stage we have to replace this Hegelian bad infinite, this neurotic, this toxic neurotic mode of desire out of which I think capitalism stems, or at least we have to have an understanding of that in order to read our predicament correctly. And I think this is lacking in Marx somewhat. Then, you know, but the other side of that is not like explode everything and eternal conflict and this and the other, but like just something much more normal. And potentially um, there comes a time when, you know, we have a good enough existence. You know, we, we, we um, live long enough. We have good enough technology, you know. Sounds like a modus vivendi. Which, yes, uh, exactly. And I'm very fond of this idea of modus vivendi. I think it gets a short shrift. Now, just this idea of, well, it's a way of getting getting by, 
and it works well enough. I, I suppose the question is, how do we get people to be okay with a modus vivendi when they are habituated to being sold the transcendental? Yes. I mean, <laughs> I would say, read Todd McGowan. Yeah. Uh, everybody read Capitalism and Desire. Incredible, incredible, utterly fucking incredible, just amazing. I've read it about 20 times and, you know, I just think it's so good. <laughs> but it, it literally answers this. And I think a lot of people who've read it um, have said to Todd that it is like philosophical self-help because obviously the trouble is, you know, we, self-help is actually bullshit because it's only self-help insofar that it, as it's not self-help at all. But, um, you know, obviously a cheaty way of doing it because the cheaty way doesn't work is to say, well, you will get transcendence, but you can only get it by not getting it, you know. But of course, that's a silly sort of like um, shortcut, silly kind of like magical thinking manifestation rubbish, which doesn't work at all. Um, I think you can't just will yourself to the realization. I think it, I think it, it takes a lot of um, logical, philosophical work. Yeah, but it's but it's it's an insight that is not conducive to the market. So it's like, where are you going to get this insight from? Like, th this insight will be repre repressed at every turn because it's not it's not conducive. And that's the difficulty. If people are unable to get access to that, mm -hmm. then even if you were to get them a modus vivendi, which was reasonably secure, their desire for the transcendental would cause them to reject it. And I think that's a lot of political theorists, I think, have thought up versions of modus vivendis that work on their own terms, but fail when compared with transcendental criteria. And so if we have any sizable number of people who are still fixed on tra transcendental criteria, even if we are politically able to get a modus vivendi, if we can't get a modus vivendi, which also is able to legitimate itself to those people, then those people tend to undermine it. And the modus vivendi becomes a kind of brief pit stop on a pendulum of, of misery. Absolutely. And I guess, because in terms of this idea of like the transcendent and the material, you know, we, we are sort of condemned to have this perpetual desire for the transcendent because that is what lack gives us, you know. Uh, it's the second birth outside the womb, like, gives us that that experience. But at the same time, when one joy and enjoyment and actual happiness are on the other side of a search for the transcendent. So if you can actually show to people that, I mean, this is, this is the thing with them. I mean, this is, this is what psychoanalysis does. This is why I think psychoanalysis is a, is a political tool, but obviously the way it operates at the moment, it's highly individualistic and only available to a short, a small amount of people. I was just talking to an analyst here, uh, yesterday and it's up to three years waiting list if you want psychoanalysis on the NHS, which is just utterly fucking shocking. So, but but you know it works in that yes, it's very difficult and it's very unnatural in a way. But I would say that uh, the pursuit of the transcendent is the denatured aspect of humanity that makes us humans and not animals. But it is actual happiness. It is enjoyment. It is greater productivity. It is better relationships with people. Like it actually works. So, I mean, yeah, we have this pesky, this pesky desire to undermine our own desire by trying to fill in lack with a transcendent, with this imaginary uh, experience that we can return to the wondrous womb, which we can't.
because if we were to do that, the only place that that exists is after death. Yeah, it's very hard to get people to give up entirely on progress narratives now. Very difficult to the point where even when, like even in this conversation, I I have this kind of, are we are we still doing a progress narrative? Are we unable to escape a progress narrative? It, it, is, a, it is a progress. It, a progress. How do I say it? I can't remember now. How do I say it in English? Progress. Progress. <laughs> sorry. sorry just saying. Uh, it, yeah, it is. But it's a sort of dialectical progress narrative. And yeah, I mean, can, are we are we just condemned to doing? But I think I think humans humans are condemned to see things in terms of progress and forward motion and stuff, even though you have to frame it within those terms, even though it's not. But I think one of the only ways, and I think this is part of the reason why there were, you know, some good years for more people than there had been after World War II, is it takes immense, immense suffering for us to realize that the progress narratives aren't worth it. Like you can only get there by, I don't know, maybe you can't only get there. I think there are many different ways to get there, but the immense horrors of world war ii and world war one you know earned us a little 20 years of where it was sort of okay for more people i mean obviously it was a sort of keynesian bullshit and all that kind of stuff but you know it was better for a while yeah this i i think the concept of the modus vivendi has a lot to do also with the concept of peace and peace is something that destroys itself because if you have it for long enough you forget why you have it you forget what led to it. You forget uh, what you need to do to maintain it. And you also start to devalue it because you forget how bad the alternative to it is. And I think the same goes for, in general, social modus vivendis. We, we can't tolerate them after a while because the people who create the piece, their life story gets to be that they created a piece, right? So they did something. They, in some way, made things better. Right. Yeah. But once you're someone who's born in the peace and you're supposed to live in the peace and die in the peace and nothing you do is supposed to change fundamentally what is happening, because if you were to change it, you would disrupt the modus vivendi and disrupt the peace. Then there's a difficulty in getting meaning out of such a life. And that, that comes in once the peace has been around a while. And I think of, of Tacitus, the Roman author who lived during the Principate, during the Pax Romana, and how much contempt he has for the peace that so many people in, in Roman history died to create, and, and how much he laments how he's not living in the era of the civil wars. He's not living in the era of the Punic Wars, the era when things were being done, when stuff was happening. Uh, he just has to sit here and write because there's nothing else that he gets to do. You know, this rich landed aristocrat you know, who has all of the comforts in the world, um, ah, he has to sit here and write. <laughs> and you know, I think the thing is, though, that even an awareness about how um, human enjoyment or jouissance like, works can lower the stakes, because, of course, like we have to rile ourselves. We have to sort of have these arbitrary gaps in order to enjoy. You know, we can't if we just have something, we don't enjoy it. You know, this is a sort of depression melancholy issue. If we don't have what we want, we're depressed. And if we actually have it, we're totally melancholic uh, because we realize that it cannot promise us a transcendent. You know, it's it's, to it's actually very traumatic 
to get something and realize it doesn't work, you know, as in it doesn't solve this transcendent issue, this issue of transcendent. But I think even at like, even an accepted awareness of this fact, as in this is how human subjectivity or this is how human enjoyment functions can lower the stakes. And I think part of the issue is that there's, we're not even at a stage where these ideas are even tolerated. You know, we, we're in this, it was such, I think it is, it is a lot of the problem. And uh, maybe this is this, um, you know, I, continental philosophy, or whatever. A lot of the problem is this denigration of a different understanding of human, how human subjectivity even works. And I think because, and it is this dialectical, contradictory, um, illogical logic of the, un, of, of, of human subjectivity. And I think it's just even understanding how that works. And obviously there are different ways of understanding it. You know, philosophers talk about it in many different ways. Analytic philosophers, I'm sure, talk about it in different ways. Um, you know, poets talk about it in certain ways or, um, authors and all this kind of stuff. But I think part of the issue today is that our culture, we live in such a commoditized, such a highly, um, capitalistic society that everything, even our culture has to express the uh, capitalist ideological framework. So we get no reprieve and we get no oppositional or um, different perspective. And we need to be constantly reminded, obviously, different forms of religion, they came with massive downsides, as we've said, like you get you get the, the recognition of some transcendent other recognizing you, but you get a huge number of repressive downsides. But obviously, we don't really have religion that much anymore, although I always say we live in a highly religious society and I think that's true but we, we're totally secular and then we get we get the we get the religion without you know it's like coffee without caffeine it's a secularized religion right yes exactly we get coffee without caffeine you know sweets without sugar that kind of thing you get all the shit side of it but no actual you know none of the the nice stuff none of the stuff that gives us recognition or that gives us wisdom or that really holds our feet to the fire in terms of this is how we humans are flawed. And the flaws obviously make us human. We have none of that. And our, our, our visual media, our writing in order for it to get published has to toe the party line. And to the extent where if you're doing anything that expresses these things in interesting ways or to remind people of the actual nature of human, of humanity, you know, you get barred from publication. So I think there's a real problem. Like we need somehow, we don't even have the chance to encounter like the logic of not even a solution, but just the very truth of how our subjectivity operates. We don't have any ways of encountering that truth. Yeah. A lot of religions had a kind of at least two levels, I think, to them, a kind of mass level that was about sense of community for people where it's not so much that the religion works in terms of persuading you of various metaphysical truths. It works because you go to a place every week or every few days or every day, and there are other people there who ostensibly share your way of life and worldview and values and who peer pressure you to continue to stick with that way of life and set of values. And because you're getting your sense of rootedness from participating in that community, you comply with that community's demands because the alternative is to lose the sense of rootedness, right? So the kind of low level of religion, which is about creating a self-sustaining community, and the purpose of, of it is to have the self-sustaining community regardless of what other bullshit has to occur along the way, 
right? And then the kind of theological level of religion, where you have the people who aren't able to make do with that, aren't able to fit into that, and have to participate in a written discussion of the metaphysics and have to really, really argue the metaphysics out. And often that top level falls into a kind of apologia because there is a need to reconcile with the thing because to not be reconciled with it would be frustrating for someone raised in a community where this is the thing that fundamentally unites everybody. So if you don't buy it, you're out. So this theological level exists for those people who can't just go on with it, but who need to kind of be massaged into being okay with it yes. through a, yes. a, an intellectual rationalization process. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I suppose the, the the challenge that you pose with psychoanalysis is what if we had a level like that, that instead of trying to apologize for the thing and and bring people back into it, tried to genuinely emancipate them from having to think in those terms. And if a large enough number of people were doing that, then you wouldn't, your sense of community would not be dependent on continuing to find a way to reconcile with the thing. This is obviously, this is totally Peter's project. (laughs) Explained it basically. But interestingly, the funny thing is, is those people who are, who require really going into the belief system in order to believe it are the ones who actually come out of it. So only, I mean, he always says, you know, religion's like an escape room, except the only way to to get out is to go in. You know, to get out, you have to literally go. And I mean, Hegel talks about this a lot. You know, the only way to sort of really come through something is to go to the very core of it. And often, yeah, the way to get beyond it is to is to really, really to believe in it. And a lot of people I've seen who have come out of Christianity, for instance, those who just sort of, as you said, were part of it growing up and maybe didn't have a great experience and they leave it, but they just replace that system with another sort of woke evangelism, essentially. But the people who really, really fucking believed or at least wanted to believe were the ones who were able to get beyond it because you realize what, you know, whichever way you go into this, when you encounter the contradiction of a system that you absolutely solidly believed in, that is really where the truth of coming to understand the rule that there is this contradiction is, I think. But yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, how do you get this to, to the majority of people? Who knows? Maybe you can't. Yeah, I, I think that is that is the dilemma. How do you create a society wherein it's it's the classic education problem. If if you're mm-hmm. trying to through some kind of educational process emancipate people, you need a society that understands the value of that educational process and will make it widespread, widely available. And of course, if you already had such a society, why would you need the process? Mm-hmm. Why would you need it? You wouldn't. I know exactly, absolutely. And I think, do we have a society really today? Do we just not have the market? And I think that's. But yeah, as you said, if we did, yeah, it is. It is like a really ridiculous catch twenty-two because, like, how do we? I mean, I find this all. You know, you have to speak the language of the market in order. We have this educational game that we're doing at the moment, and it's about all of these things for children. It's about sort of like. Uh, I won't go into it, but um, we have to obviously speak a certain utilitarian language in order for it to be made. Uh, and it's about basically um, getting children to think dialectically. <laughs> basically, it's what it is. Um, which I think they kind of already naturally do, but it's in terms of like storytelling and everything like that. Um, but like, yeah, you have to, and especially as I think those who who have a sort of liberal arts education who tend to run a lot of society today, 
are the ones who get this insight the least, I think. I think actually a lot of people know it. A lot of people who aren't educated into our contemporary, um, you know, legitimation mechanism for this absolutely toxic society that we have and economic system that we have. I think much more people get it than, or just already know it, than those people who sort of order society or who happen to be in charge. Um, yeah, I think, you know, obviously we talk about PMC a lot, but I think there is there is a truth to the fact that they potentially need to know this the most out of anybody else. Yeah, when you have a kind of professional class, a kind of upper middle echelon, I think when it comes to religion, it's it's the upper middle echelon that is the most troubling. You know, <laughs> it's the people who get enough of a theological background that they become really persuaded that they know it. I mean, it's that uh, Dunning-Kruger effect where you, you know a little bit and it's worse yes. than knowing nothing. If you're a lay person, exactly. well, it might all be rubbish. What do you know? If you're yeah. someone who has spent, yeah. who's become a priest, you know, not not a, an academic theologian, but someone who's become a priest, oftentimes that's the really dangerous amount to have. And of course, when you when your material conditions rely on you completely being yeah. deluded, yeah, <laughs> your, when you you're not going to give it up. Uh, anyway, we we are coming up to the end of the hour, and I want to briefly discuss with the listeners some of what's going on with the show. So, right now, we're making about uh, two episodes a week, right? One that's for everybody and one that's a Patreon episode. It's about eight episodes a month. Now, our pricing structure for getting this stuff edited is on a per-episode basis. Right now, the show is not generating enough revenue to support eight episodes a month. It's not generating enough revenue. So if this continues, we're going to have to cut back on the number of episodes we do a bit, right? Now, I don't want to do that, and you probably don't want us to do that. So we, we do need more people to support the show to maintain this number of episodes. Now, as an inducement to help get people feeling motivated, uh, we're going to change up what we do with the Patreon-exclusive B-Side episodes a bit. We're going to try to make them a little bit more attractive. So we're going to start theming those episodes, having them be themed around topics. Right now, they're a little bit loosey-goosey. They're a little bit of a vibe check. We're going to make them a little bit more robust. They're going to focus more on specific themes and often on political themes. So they're going to have titles. You're going to be able to see what it is that we're talking about on the B-side that you might be missing if you're not subscribing. And I'm hoping that if we put a little bit more effort into structuring those exclusive B-side episodes, that'll give you guys a little bit more of a reason to subscribe. Uh, but to let you know, we're, we're going to keep going for a while with this pace. But if it continues to be the case that we can't fund eight episodes. Uh, there's only so much money that we can sink into this. We're not making tons of money, none of the three of us. So we're going to have to draw back the number of episodes sooner or later if we don't get more Patreon subscribers. So it's up to you guys. If you guys want to support it, we'll keep making this number. If if we can't get that level of support, we'll have to cut it back a bit. Hopefully we don't have to cut it back, but I'm letting you guys know because ultimately you're the only ones who can keep us making this stuff. Either we have enough money to pay our sound editors or we don't, all right? So we're going to go over and do the B-side now. And the B-side's topic this week, guys, the topic is going to be the Delta variant and Matt Hancock, the British uh, health secretary who recently resigned, right, uh, over a scandal. So we're going to talk about all of that. That's what it's going to be. So we'll see you guys over there, or if not over there, then next time. Have a wonderful rest of the day. Thank you so much for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.